0: I put so much emotional time and effort into making these mixes happen. They're going out for free, they get your DJ slots, but more importantly, it goes back to what makes me want to work in music, which was a lyric from Mike G and the Jungle Brothers. From that famous album, Done by the Forces of Nature, where he said, It's about getting the music across. It's about getting the message across. It's about getting it across without crossing over. How can I get art across an audience without diluting its integrity? And it's such an honor to have this mix drop in this Friday. I mean, that's made my year. We're not even into June yet.
1: Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is all about the state of the music industry, and we're joined by the one and only Will Page. He is a fellow at the London School of Economics. He's an author of Tarzan Economics and Pivot, and he was the former chief economist at Spotify. Will's second time on the podcast now. The first time we talked all about the future of streaming and where things are going in music, and we picked that conversation back up. We talked about a bunch of trends, including the glocalization of music, which is from a new report that Will had recently put out. We also talked about why he values the music industry to be close to a $40 billion industry, which is much higher than a lot of the reports about recorded music itself. And we also talk about a bunch of the topics that are happening right now, whether it's AI, how streaming should be priced, the dynamic between record labels and streaming services, and a whole lot more. Love this conversation. Will always brings it with these conversations. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Here's our chat. This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, DICE, where fans can experience more of the shows they love. Buying concert tickets can be exhausting. It's easy to miss your favorite artist when they're in town, and fans have to watch for hidden fees and resellers who drive up ticket prices, all while hoping one of their friends can attend. You deserve better as a fan. On DICE, you can find quality live shows tailored to you. Dice will tell you what's happening in your area and offer a personalized selection of shows. Artists love to partner with Dice because they provide complete and fair experience with fans through their waiting list technology that locks tickets to smartphones. Plus, Dice's robust analytics helps artists better understand their audience. Venues and promoters love Dice because their data-driven tools, customer service, and direct connection to fans across the world make it the place to buy and sell tickets. Want to learn more? Check out DICE at DICE.FM. That's D-I-C-E.fm. All All right, today we have the one and only Will Page with us, who is recording from a beautiful location. I know if you're listening to the pod, you can't see, but Will, tell us where you are right now.
0: So great to be back like a boomerang on Trapital, Dan. And I'm coming to you from the Platoon Studios, part of the Apple company, Platoon is a label services company, which is owned by Apple. They're doing great stuff with artists, like they am piano music from South Africa. And the best place I can describe to you here, it's like a TARDIS if you've ever seen Doctor Who. There's a tiny door in this Talyard music complex in North London, just behind King's Cross. And when you enter that tiny door, you enter this maze of the world-class spatial audio recording studios of Apple. And it's an honor they've given me this location to come to Trapital today.
1: Well, we're going to make the best of it here, and it's always great to have you on because last year, last year's episode felt like a state of the industry episode, and that's where I Mm -hmm. want to start things off this year with this episode. A couple months ago, you put out your post in your Tarzan Economics where you said that this industry is not a $20, $25 billion industry the way others Mm -hmm. say. You say, no, this is almost a $40 billion industry, so let's break it down. How did you arrive there and— What's the backstory?
0: I get goosebumps when you say that. You think like 10 years ago, we were talking about a $14 billion business, and now it's a 40. You know, excuse the slurred Scottish pronunciation, but let's just be clear from one four to four zero. How did that happen? Well, the origins of that work, and you've been a great champion of it, Dan, is for me to go into a cave around about October, November, and calculate the global value of copyright. And copyright is not just what the record labels publish, that famous IFPI GMR report that everyone refers to, but it's what collecting societies like ASCAP and BMI collect. It's what publishers generate through direct licensing. You have to add A plus B plus C labels plus collecting societies, plus publishers together, then the complex part, ripping out the double counting and doing all the addbacks, and you get to this figure of 39.6 billion, which as you say, you round it up, it begins with a four. And I think there's a few things that we can kind of get into on this front. I think firstly, we should discuss the figure. I'll offer you a few insights there. Secondly, I think we should discuss the division. And then thirdly, I wanna cover the physical aspect as well. So if you think about the figure, we've got 39.6 billion. We know it's growing. I think what's gonna be interesting when I go back into that cave later this year to redo that number, it's gonna be a lot bigger, Dan. I'll say it here on Trapital first, I think a $40 billion business in 2021 is going to be closer to a $45 billion business in 2022. And one of the reasons why it's not labels and streaming, it's a combination of publishers are reporting record collections. Essentially, they're playing catch-up with labels, booking deals that perhaps labels booked a year earlier, and collecting studies are going to get back to normal after all the damage of the pandemic. And when you drive those factors in, we have a much bigger business than we had before. So for the people listening to your podcast who are investing in copyright, this party's got a way to run. You know, Don't jump off the train yet, because this thing is growing.
1: And the piece I want to talk about there is the publishing side of this. If you look at the breakdown of the numbers you have, the publishing is nearly, publishing plus, is nearly $13 billion itself the major record labels own most of the largest publishers right now why isn't this number just automatically included wouldn't it be in everyone's advantage to include the fact that yes universal music group and universal music publishing group are together part of the entity that make this whether it's them it's warner chapel it's others why isn't this just the top line number that's shared in all of the other reports
0: it would be nice if it was and indeed i think the publishing industry around about 2001 used to do this they haven't done it since but it's like spaghetti it's the best way i can describe it i mean how do you measure publisher income you know is it gross receipts by the publisher is it the publisher plus the collecting society that is money that went straight to the songwriter and didn't touch the publisher is it what the publisher holds on to what we call an in industry a net publisher shares All these weird ways of measuring this industry that we have to be clear on, and it's not easy, but I think what we do in the report is we try and make it bite-sized, we try and make it digestible to work out how much of that publisher's business came through CMOs, the ASCAPs, the BMIs, the CISACs, over here, PRS Music, and how much do they bring in directly. And that allows you to understand a couple of things. Firstly, how do they compare vis-a-vis labels in terms of their overall income? And secondly, how do they compare when they go out to market directly? Let's say putting a sink in a TV commercial or a movie versus generating money through collective licensing, that is radio or TV via ASCAP or BMI. So you get an interpretation of how these publishers are making those numbers work as well.
1: That makes sense. And then when we're able to break it down, we see a few numbers that roll up into it. So from a high level, at least what you shared from 2021, we have that 25.8 billion number from the recorded side so that does fall in line with what we see from what the ifpis and others share 10 billion sure. from the publishing and then you do have the next 3.5 and then a little sliver there for royalty free and for the publishers direct revenue that doesn't come from the songwriters the next piece though within the elements of how all of the revenue flows into that We've talked a lot about streaming and we've talk, we'll have talked. we get into streaming in a little bit, but I want to talk about the physical side because that was the second piece that you mentioned. We've all talked about vinyl, but it's not just vinyl. So could you talk a bit about where the trends are right now with physical sales and why this is such a huge factor for this number?
0: Who'd have thought on a Trapital podcast in May 2023, we'd be talking about physical as a second topic on the agenda, but it's worth it. I mean, it's not a rounding error anymore. It's not chump change. In America, physical revenues, largely vinyl, outpaced the growth of streaming for the second year straight. It's not as big as streaming, but it's growing faster, and it has been growing faster for two years now. That's crazy. Here in the UK, the value of physical revenues to the UK music industry has overtaken the value of physical to Germany. Quick bit of history, for years, decades, Germans used to buy CDs that's fallen off a cliff. They've given up on CDs. Whereas over here in Britain, we've all started buying vinyl again. So the value of vinyl in Britain is worth more than the value of CDs to Germans. That's type of stuff you didn't expect to see. And if you go out to Asia, you see the CD market's still strong. You've still got people who buy more than one copy of the same CD of the same band. Don't ask me to explain the rationale for that, but it happens and it moves numbers. But after all this, when the dust settles, I mean, a couple of observations, all the data to me is suggesting that 55, 60% of vinyl buyers don't actually own a record player. So I think it was Peter Drucker who said, the seller rarely knows what they're selling. And I don't think you're selling intellectual property or music copyright here. What we're actually selling is merchandise. You know, Taylor Swift, I got an email from Taylor Swift's team saying they've got a marble blue vinyl coming out this week. Now we're talking about vinyl in the same way we used to talk about stonewashed jeans. Marble blue. <laughs> this is like the fourth version of the same 11 songs priced at $29.99. Let's just figure that out for a second. I'm willing to give you $10 a month to access 100 million songs on streaming services. But I'm also, it's the same person, I'm also willing to give you 30 bucks to buy just 10 of them this is expensive music and I might not even be listening to it because I don't even have a record player.
1: This is the fascinating piece about how we're calculating this stuff because the vinyl sales and all of that has been reported widely as a great boom to the industry. And it has been, we've seen the numbers and in a lot of ways it brings people back to the era of being able to sell the hard copy of the thing itself, but it's much closer to selling a t-shirt or selling a sweatshirt or selling some type of concert merch that it actually is the actual physical medium itself so it'll be fascinating to see how that continues to evolve how that embraces as well on your side though as a personal listener do you buy any vinyls yourself that you don't listen to that you just keep on display or
0: it's like your shoe collection, isn't it? Yes, right. is the answer to that. But no, I mean, I will say that I got 3,000 fi- funk records in the house and they're all in alphabetical chronological order. So if they haven't been listened to, at least I know where to find them.
1: <laughs> that's fair. That makes sense. So let's talk about the third piece of this, and that's the division of this. So you have mm. the b to c side and you have the b to b side. Can we dig into that?
0: Sure. This is, I think... The backdrop for a lot more of the sort of thorny conversations happening in the music industry just now. You may have heard that in the UK, we've had a three-year-long government inquiry into our business. We had the regulator turn over the calls. And so there's a lot of interest in how you split up this $40 billion piece of pie. Who gets what? And The division I'm going to talk about here is labels and artists on one side and songwriters and publishers on the other side. As it currently stands, I would keep it simple and say two-thirds of that $40 billion goes to the record label and the artist, one-third goes to the publisher and the songwriter. Now, when I first did this exercise back in 2014, it was pretty much 50-50. And when you see things which are not 50-50 in life, you're entitled to say, is that fair? Is it fair that when a streaming service pays a record label a dollar, it pays the publisher and the songwriter around 29 cents? If you're a publisher and a songwriter, you might say that's unfair because I'm getting less than them. I have preference issues and I have envy issues with this division. let's flip it around. If you look at how B2B world works licensing at the wholesale level, let's say you're licensing the BBC, for example, if your songs played on the BBC, you're going to get 150 pounds for a play, 90 pounds goes to the songwriter and the publisher, 60 pounds goes to the artist and the record label. Now, is that fair? Why does the publisher win in the B2B market, but the record label wins in the B2C market? And the, the lesson I want to give your listeners is one from economics. It's rarely taught at university these days, but back in 1938, 1939, in a small Polish town called LaV, now part of the Ukraine, ironically, three Polish mathematicians sat in a place called the Scottish cafe, ironic for me, and invented a concept called fair division. And the question they posed was, let's imagine there's a cake and there's two people looking at that cake getting hungry. There's Dan Runcie over in the Bay Area and there's Will Page back in Edinburgh. What's the best way to divide that cake up? And the conclusion they came up with is you give Will Page the knife. Aha, I've got the power to cut the cake. But you give Dan Runcie the right to choose which half. Damn, I've got to make that cut really even. Otherwise, Dan's going to pick the bigger half and I'll lose out. This divide-or-chooser model gave birth to the subject of fair division. And it simply asks, what makes a fair division fairer? How can I solve for preference? How can I solve for envy? I want that slice, not that slice. I'm unhappy because Dan got that slice and not that slice. There's a whole bunch of mess in this. You add a third person, it gets more complex. But I just want to sow that seed for your listeners, which is when we ask questions like, why is it the label gets a dollar and the publisher gets 29 cents? There's got to be some rationale why, you know, who bets first? Is it the label that bets first or the publisher? Who commits most? Is it the label that commits most marketing spend or the publisher? These types of questions to do with risk often help answer questions of fair division or to quote the famous Gangstar song, who's going to take the weight? Somebody's got to take a risk when you play this game. And perhaps there's a risk-reward trade-off, which is telling us who gets what share of the spoils.
1: Let's unpack this a little bit because it's easy to see may not be fair but it's easy to see why the record labels get preference on the b2c side because as i mentioned before the record labels have acquired a lot of the publishers and especially in the streaming era they were prioritizing that slice of the pie they are top line as opposed to what essentially was a subsidi- subsidiary of their business the publishing side why is it flipped with sync well how did that dynamic end up being that way
0: That's an anomaly, which is actually blatantly obvious. You just don't think about it. And the way it was taught to me is anyone can record a song, but only one person can own a song. So I think let's give an example of, I don't know, a beach boy song where I could ask for the original recording of that beach boy song to be used in the sink, or I could get a cover band. So let's say I got a hundred thousand dollars to clear the rights to that song. And the initial split should be 50 50. If a cover span is willing to do a version of it for 10,000, the publisher can claim 90,000 of the budget and get the option. If the record label objects and says, well, I wish you used a master, well, you've got a price under the 10,000 to get the master in. So this kind of weird thing of bargaining power. If you ever hear, let me scratch that again, let me start from the top. Let me give you a quick example, Dan, to show how this works. One of my favorite sort of movies to watch when you're bored and killing time is The Devil's Wears Prada. Great film. And in that it's film, there's a song by Seal called Crazy. Incredible song. Timeless. That guy has, you know, timeless hits to his name, but it's not him recording it. Now, what might have happened in that instance is the film producer has got 100000 to get the song in the movie, and he's looking to negotiate how much you pay for publishing, how much you pay for label. Now, if the label is getting you know, argumentative, wanting more and more, and the publisher is happy with a certain fee, well, the film producer's got an option. Pay the publisher of the 100000 pay him 90000 Give him the lion's share of the deal. And then just turn to the label and say, screw you, I'm going to get a covers band to knock me out a decent version of it. And this happens all the time in TV films, in commercials. You'll hear covers of famous songs, and quite often what's happening there is you got to pay the publisher the lion's share of your budget and then just cough up some small change to get the covers spent and knock out a version. And it's just a great reminder, Dan, of anyone can record a song, but only one person can own the song. And that is the author. And that's why negotiating and bargaining power favors publishers and sync
1: over the record labels. That makes sense. And as you're saying that, I was thinking through five, six other examples of cover songs I've <laughs> so seen many. in popular TV shows and movies. And this is exactly why.
0: It's always car commercials. For some reason, every car commercial has got a <laughs> cover of a famous song. You think, remember that weird Scottish guy, Dan, runs Seattle on Capital? Yeah, that's what's happened. The publishers pulled the rug from under the record label's feet at the negotiation table. Another super important observation about the globalization trend, Dan, is I'm going to take one of those 10 countries as a spotlight, Poland. Now, the top 10 in Poland is all Polish. The top 20 in Poland is all Polish. In fact, if you go to the top 40, it's pretty much all Polish bands performing in Polish. And you could say that's localization. But stop the bus. Most of those acts are performing hip-hop, which is by itself a US genre. So perhaps we've got globalization of genre, but localization of language and artist. And That's a very important distinction for us to dissect and perhaps it's for the anthropologist, the sociologist, to work out what's going on here. But it's not as straightforward as it's just local music. It's local music, but it's global genres, which is driving this forward.
1: And that's a great point for the people that work at record labels and other companies making decisions too, because there's been so much talk about hip-hop's decline. But so much of that is focused on how this music is categorized. And a lot of it's categorized solely on what is considered American hip-hop. But if you look at the rise of music in Latin America, which has been one of the fastest growing regions in the world, most of that music is hip hop. Bad Bunny considers himself a hip hop artist. You just brought up this example of Polish hip hop being one of the most popular genres there. So when we think about how different genres get categorized, which genres get funding, let's remember that key piece, because hip hop is this culture and it's global, and that's going to continue so Let's make sure that we are not taking away from a genre that is really one of the most impactful and still puts up numbers if we're categorizing it in the right way.
0: Damn straight. I mean, I think genres are often like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And in a paper published by London School of Economics, I was honored to use that line that I think I said on Trapital last time, which is rap is something you do. Hip hop is something you live. Rap could be the genre hip hop could be the lifestyle. Maybe what those Polish acts getting to the top of the charts are doing is representing a lifestyle, but they're doing it in their mother tongue.
1: Well said, agreed. Well, let's switch gears a bit. One topic that I want to talk about, and I actually gave a talk recently and I referenced you from this term and its use in music, was the globalization of music and mm-hmm. why this is happening and what it means for Western music, specifically in the US. But first, if you could define that term, and explain why this is so important in music right now.
0: Well, I'm so excited to be on Trapital talking about this because we are now officially published by London School of Economics. So I'm gonna make my mum and dad proud of me at last. Backstory, paperback of my book, Tarzan Economics, retitled to Pivot. Apparently WH Smith Travel and Hudson Travel said books with economics in their titles don't sell in airports. So we've rebranded the whole book to Pivot and it's in airports, which is a result. That book, that paperback came out on the 6th of February. And that night, I was on the BBC One show, and they had this great, happy, clappy, family-friendly story they wanted to bounce off me. They said, hey, Will, isn't it great that the top 10 songs in Britain last year were all British acts? For the first time in 60 years, Britain got a clean sweep of the top 10 of the music charts. I said, curb your enthusiasm, because we're seeing it elsewhere. The top 10 in Germany were all German. Top 10 in Italy were all Italian. Ditto France. Ditto Poland. And if you go to Spain, the top 10 there were all Spanish language, but largely Latin American. So it's not just a British thing that we've seen this rise of local music on global streaming platforms. We're seeing it everywhere. Cue some gulps and embarrassments live in the TV studio. But I made my point. I came out of that interview thinking, well, if that stunned them, it's going to stun more people. And I said about working on a paper called glocalization which with a Scottish accent is hard to pronounce. Let's see how you get on with it. Not localization, and not globalisation, merging the two by definition and by practice. glocalization I teamed up with this wonderful author, Chris Dalla Riva, who'd be a great guest on your show. He did a wonderful blog piece you may have read called Why Is There No Key Changes In Music Anymore? It's a really beautiful piece of music writing. And there isn't. Nobody uses key changes in the conclusion of songs. And we set out to do this academic study to explain to the world what's been happening in music and why it's relevant to everyone else. And what we saw across 10 European countries was strong evidence of local music dominating the top of the charts in these local markets on global platforms. Now, history matters here. We didn't see this with local high street retailers. America, British, Canadian music dominated those charts. We still don't see it in linear broadcast models like radio and television. You know, it's still English language repertoire dominating those charts. But When it comes to global streaming, unregulated free market global streaming, we see this phenomenal effect where local music is topping the charts. And, you know, you look at what does it mean for us, English language countries like ourselves, it means things get a little bit tough. It means exporting English language repertoire into Europe becomes harder and harder. Maybe I'll just close off with this quite frightening thought, which is Britain is one of only three net exporters of music in the world. The other two being your country, United States and Sweden, thanks to a phenomenal list of Swedish songwriters and artists. And I can't think of the last time this country's broken a global superstar act since Dua Lipper in 2017. Dan, we used to knock them out one, two a year. 2017 was a long time ago, and it's been pretty dry since.
1: And that's a great point for the people that work at record labels and other companies making decisions too, because there's been so much talk about hip hop's decline. But so much of that is focused on how this music is categorized. And a lot of it's categorized solely on what is considered American hip hop. But if you look at the rise of music in latin america which has been one of the fastest growing regions in the world most of that music is hip-hop bad bunny considers himself a hip-hop artist you just brought up this example of polish hip-hop being one of the most popular genres there so when we think about how different genres get categorized which genres get funding let's remember that key piece because hip-hop is this culture and it's global and that's going to continue so Let's make sure that we are not taking away from a genre that is really one of the most impactful and still puts up numbers if we're categorizing it in the right way.
0: Damn straight. I mean, I think genres are often like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And in a paper published by London School of Economics, I was honored to use that line that I think I said on Trapital last time, which is rap is something you do, hip hop is something you live. Rap could be the genre, hip hop could be the lifestyle. Maybe what those Polish acts getting to the top of the charts are doing, representing a lifestyle but they're doing it in their mother tongue
1: well said agreed this is something that's been top of mind for me as well because technology in general has a way of making regions and making people in particular regions closer together than it does making the world bigger it's like in, in a sense technology can make the world seem bigger but it actually makes it seem smaller right? And I think that algorithms Mm -hmm. and the bubbles that come from that are another symptom of this, but this is going to have huge implications for Western music. You mentioned it yourself, all of these markets that are used to being export markets, when they no longer have the strength to be able to have those exports, how does that then change the underlying product? How does that then change the budgets, the expectations of what you're able to make? Because if you're still trying to maintain that same top line revenue, you're still trying to maintain those airwaves you have, it's gonna cost you more money to do that because you can't rely on the few Western superstars that you have to get that. You have to have the equivalent of a superstar or at least a middle tier star in every region that you once had strong market share that you could export in. And it's gonna change cost structures, it's gonna change focus, and a lot of these expansions that we've seen, of record labels, especially Western record labels, having strong footprints in different regions across the world, they're not just gonna to need to have presence, they're gonna to need to have strong results and in many ways try to rival the own companies that are in those comp- in those regions, the homegrown record labels, because every country is trying to do their own version of this and it's gonna be tight. This is one of the challenges that I think is only gonna to continue to happen.
0: You're opening up a real can of worms. I get it pardon to your listeners for getting excited here, day of publication, first time of being able to discuss it on air, but I know I'm onto something huge here. You've just illustrated why. Just a few remarks. One, some of the quotes that we have in the paper are just phenomenal. We have Apple included in the paper. We have Amazon. Steve Boom, the head of media for Amazon, in charge of not just music, but Twitch, audiobooks, the whole thing. He's looking at all these media verticals. He makes this point where he says, as the world becomes more globalized, we become more tribal. Stop right there. Has he just nailed it? What's happening here? It's, the economists can only explain so much. This is what's so deep about this topic. I want to toss it to the anthropologist the sociologist to make sense of what I've uncovered. But it's massive. Now let's take a look at what's happening down on the street level with the record labels and the consumers. You know, The record labels are making more money, and they're devolving more power to the local offices. You know, the headcount in the major labels' local offices in Germany, France, and Vietnam, or wherever is doubled in the past five years. It hasn't doubled in the global headquarters. That's telling you something. If you look at how labels do their global priority list, maybe every month, here's 10 songs we want you to prioritize globally. So I had a look at how this is done, and across the year, I saw maybe eight, 10, 12 artists in total, and there's 120 songs, but there's not that many artists. You think about how many local artists are coming out the gate every week, hitting their local labels, their local streaming staff up with ideas, with showcases and so on. Not a lot of global priority. Then you flip it and you think about the consumer. You know, they've had linear broadcast models for 70 years where you get what you're given. I'm going to play this song at this time, and you're going to have to listen to it, FM radio, TV shows. Now they're empowered with choice, and they don't want that anymore. They want what's familiar. They want to comfort them. They want their own stars performing in their own mother tongue, topping those charts. So this has got way to go. Now, a couple of flips on this. Firstly, where does this mean for artists? And then I'm going to take it out of media. But let's deal with artists. Let's imagine a huge festival in Germany, 80,000 people. That festival can now sell out with just German X. No problem at all. So when the big American acts or British acts commanded like a million dollars a headlining fee, you want to go play that festival that promoter can turn around and say, sorry, man, I can't generate any more money by having you on my bill. How much are you going to pay me to get on stage? Price maker, price taker. You see what happens? And then the last thing, and there's so much more in this paper for your listeners to get to, and let's please link to it. And you'll take, I'll take questions live on your blog about it as well, but there's a great guy called Chris Deering, the father of the Sony PlayStation. Did you play the Sony PlayStation back in the day? Were you a fan of the PlayStation?
1: Oh, yeah. PS1 and PS2, yeah.
0: Okay. You, so you, you're you an OG PlayStation fella. So he's the father of the PlayStation, and launching the PlayStation in the 90s and into the noughties, he offered this observation, which is when they launched uh, SingStar, which was karaoke challenge in the PlayStation, He says, we always discussed why the Swedish version of SingStar was more popular in Sweden than the English version. Sounds intuitive enough. Let me break it down. Gaming back then was interactive. Music was not. You interacted with your PlayStation. That's why you killed so much time with it. Music was just a CD in a plastic case that broke your fingernails when you tried to open it. That's how the world worked back then. And gaming offered you choice. I could try and do karaoke with those huge global English language hits, where I could go further down the chart and buy the Swedish version and sing along to less well-known Swedish hits and the consumer always picked the Swedish version. So as a bellwether, as a microcosm, what I think Chris Deering was teaching us was we saw this happening in gaming long before you started seeing it happen with music. 20 years ago when it was interactive content, which gaming was, music wasn't, and consumers had a choice, which gaming offered and music didn't, they went local. Today, then, we're dealing with music that's A, interactive, and B, offers choice. What we're seeing is local cream is rising to the top of the charts.
1: And we're seeing this across multimedia as well. We're seeing it in the film industry, too. Even as recent as five, ten years ago, you release any of the blockbuster movies that were successful in the U.S., almost all of them had some overseas footprint. Some of them definitely vary based on the genre, but they were always there. But now china specifically had been such a huge market for the Hollywood and box office specifically but now they're starting to release more of their own high-end movies and those are attracting much more audiences than our export content can one two the chinese government in general is just being very selective about what they allow and what they don't allow and then three with that that's really only leaving certain fast and furious movies and avatar that's it the marvel movies are hit and miss depending on what they allow what they don't allow and how and it's just crazy to see the implications that has had for marvel studios for everyone else in hollywood as well when you think about it and we're seeing this across multimedia i think there's a few trends here that makes me think about one is population growth in general and just where those trends are and how different corporations can approach the opportunity. Because I look at Nigeria, you look at Ethiopia, these are some of the fastest growing countries in the world. And you look at the music that is rising more popular than ever, whether it's Amapiano or it's Afrobeats, that's only going to continue to grow. And that's only from a few regions in the huge continent of Africa. So when we're thinking about where success is going to come from, where that lines up with infrastructure, people have been saying it for years. but. The reason that we're seeing the growth in Africa, the growth in Latin America, the growth in a lot of these markets is this trend of globalization, and it's only going to increase. So if we're thinking about where we want to invest dollars, where we want to build infrastructure in the future, we not just being folks that live in the Western world, but also elsewhere in the world, this is where things are heading.
0: Let me come in down the middle and then throw it out to the side. Ralph Simon, a longtime mentor of mine, is quoted in the paper, and where he's actually going to moderate the address here at the MAD Festival here in London, which is for the marketing and advertising community here, where he says, what you've uncovered here, that headwind of glocalization is going to affect the world of marketing and advertising this time next year. That's what will be the buzzword in their head. So if you think about, I don't know, a drinks company like Diageo, maybe they've got a globalized strategy and a globalized marketing budget, when they start seeing that you've got to go fishing where the fish are and the fish are localized, they're going to devolve that budget and devolve that autonomy down to the local offices. So the wheels of localization, this rise of local over global, they've only just got started. If I've called it right, we're onto something way bigger than a 20-minute read LSE discussion paper. This goes deep, deep and far beyond economics. But then you mentioned as well China. I mean, just one offshoot observation there, which is to look at education. If you look at the UK university system, about a third, if not more of it, is subsidized by the Chinese government and Chinese students here. Great for business, slightly dubious in its business practices, charging one student more than another student for the same product, but that's what we do over here. And I've recently been made a fellow of Edinburgh University's Futures Institute, which is an honor to me, You know, gets me back home more often, fine. And I was learning from them that the quality of students coming from China to study here in Britain and across Europe is getting worse and worse. Why? Because the best students have got the best universities in China and they no longer need to travel. So there's a classic export-import dilemma of, for the past 10 or 15 years, universities have built a complete treasury coffer base of cash around selling higher education to the Chinese. And now the tables are turning. I don't need to send my students to your universities anymore. I'll educate them here. Thank you very much. So, like I say, this stuff is a microcosm. that has got a can of worms that can open in many different directions.
1: And is going to touch every industry that we know of to some extent, especially as every industry wants tries to be global to some extent. This is going to be a big topic moving forward. Let's shift gears a bit. One of the terms that was really big for us that came from our podcast we did last year, we talked about herbivores and we talked about carnivores, and we talked about them in relation to streaming. We haven't touched on streaming yet, and this will be our opportunity to dig down into it. But Mm -hmm. for the listeners, can we revisit where that came from, what that means, and also where this is heading? What does this mean for music streaming right now as it relates to the services and competition?
0: Well, when I first came on Trapital, that was in the small Spanish village of Cayosa Denseria, and I didn't think I'd come up with an expression that would go viral from a small village in Spain to be you know, quoted from in Canada, in America. And Dan, this is quite hilarious. We have a new Secretary of State of Culture here in the UK, the Right Honourable MP Lucy Fraser, KG. Smart as a whip. Brilliant. And when I first met her, you know what the first thing she said was? I listened to you on Trapital. I wanted to ask you about this thing you've got going called herbivores and carnivores. So right the way through to the corridors of power, this expression seems to have traveled. What are we talking about? Well, the the way I framed it was for 20 years, we've had these streaming services, which essentially grow without damaging anyone else. Amazon is up. Bigger subscriber numbers. Apple's got bigger subscriber numbers. YouTube announces bigger subscriber numbers. And then Spotify announces bigger subscriber numbers. Everyone's growing each other's gardens. That's fine. That's herbivores. What happens when you reach that saturation point where there's no more room to grow? The only way I can grow my business is stealing some of yours. That's carnivores. And the greatest example is simply telcos. We're all familiar with telcos. We all pay our broadband bills. How do telcos compete? Everybody in your town has got a broadband account. So the only way you can compete is by stealing someone else's business. The only way here in Britain, Virgin Media can compete is by stealing some of Sky's. The only way that AT&T competes is by stealing some of Comcasts. So that's carnivore competition. Now the key point for Trapital listeners is we don't know what this chapter is going to read like because we've never had carnivorous, pronounce that word correctly, carnivorous behavior before. We've never seen a headline that said Spotify's down 2 million subs and Apple's up 2 million or Amazon's up 3 million and, and you know, YouTube is down 3 million. We don't know what that looks like. So, I think it's important for Trapital to start thinking about logical, plausible scenarios. You know, I'll kick one obvious one, which is, again, a lesson from the telcos. When we do become carnivores, do we compete on price or do we compete on features? Let me wheel this back a second. You know, We'll get into pricing in more depth later, but downward competition on price tends to be how carnivores compete. And that would be a fascinating development, given that we've not seen much change in price in 22 years and counting. Or, as we saw with Apple, they roll out spatial audio, they charge more for it. They've got a new feature, and they charge more for that feature. So do we see downward competition, blood on the carpet, price competition, or do we see upward competition based on features? I don't know which one it's going to be. It's not for me to call it. I don't work for any of these companies. I've worked with these companies, but I don't work for any of them directly. But we have to start discussing these scenarios. How is this chapter going to read when we start learning of net churn amongst the four horsemen streaming services that's out there? It's, it's going to be a fascinating twist. And I'm beginning, Dan, I'm beginning to see signs of carnivorous behavior happening right now, to be honest with you. I can see switchers happening across the four. So I think we're getting there in the US and the UK.
1: What are those signs you see?
0: I'm just seeing that in terms of subscriber growth, it's a lot bumpier than before. Before it was just a clear trajectory. The intelligence I was getting was everyone's up, no one needs to bother. Now I flag, you know, I signed the siren. I'm beginning to see, you know, turbulence in that subscriber growth. Someone could be down one month, up the next month. Maybe that's just a little bit of churn, the ending of a trial period. You don't know. But now, for me, the the smoke signals are some of those services are seeing their growth stutter. Others are growing, which means we could start having some switching. I can add to that as well. Cross usage is key here. I really hammered this home during my 10 years at Spotify, which is to start plotting grids, saying who's using your service? This person, that person, the next person. Now, ask what other services are they using? And some data from America suggests that one in four people using Apple music are also using Spotify and one in four people using Spotify are also using apple music cross usage confirmed so if that was true, what do you make of that with a public spending squeeze with inflation with people becoming more cost conscious in the economy with less disposable income? maybe they want to wheel back from that and use just one not two and that's where we could start seeing some net churn effects taking place as well so You know, imagine a cross-usage grid in whatever business you're working on for your Trapital listeners and ask that question, I know who's using my stuff, what else are they using? And that's a really, really important question to ask to work out how this carnivore scenario is going to play out, how we're going to write this chapter.
1: This is interesting because it reminds me of the comparisons that people often make to video streaming and some of the dynamics there where prices have increased over the years i know we've talked about it before to 10 12 years ago netflix was cheaper than spotify was from a monthly u.s price subscription and now God, it's, God. It's, it's right and now it's nearly twice the price of the current price point that it is the difference though when we're talking about when you're in that carniv- when you're in that carnival market what do you compete on features or price video stream you can compete on features essentially because the content is differentiated if you want to watch wednesday that netflix series there's only one platform that you can watch it on you need to have that netflix subscription but in music it's different because if you want to listen to SZA's sos album that's been dominating the charts you can listen to it on any of these services so because there are fewer and fewer limitations, at least if your goal, main goal from a consumption perspective is to listen to the music, how do you then differentiate, which I do think can put more pressure on price, which is very interesting because there is this broader pricing debate that's happening right now about why prices should be higher. And we've seen in the past six plus months that apple has at least raised its prices amazon has done the same at least for new subscribers spotify has announced that it will but hasn't yet and this is part of that dynamic because on one hand you have these broader economic trends as you're calling them out but on the other hand you do have the rights holders and others pushing on prices to increase and then you have the dynamic between the rights holders and then the streaming services about who would then get the increased revenue that comes. So there's all of these fascinating dynamics that are intersecting with this herbivore shift to carnivores.
0: For sure. Let me just go around the block of those observations you offered us, all relevant, all valid, and just you know pick off a few of them. If we go back to Netflix, I think... Netflix has a not a herbivore. I'm going to talk about alcohol here because it's late in the day in the UK. A gin and tonic relationship with its competitors. That is, if Dan Runsey doesn't pay for any video streaming service, and let's say Netflix gets you in, and I'm the head of Disney Plus, I say, Well, thank you, Netflix. That makes it easier for me to get Dan to pay for Disney Plus too. They complement each other. They are genuine complementary goods. They might compete for attention. You know, who's got the best exclusive content? Who's going to renew the friends deal? Whatever. You know, who's going to get Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on? That could be a switch of piece of content too. But when you step back from it, it's gin and tonic. It's not different brands of gin. That's really important to acknowledge, which is they've grown this market of video streaming. They've increased their prices. And the same person is paying for two, three, four different packages. If I add it up... I'm giving video streaming about 60 quid a month, and I'm giving music streaming 10. And the 60 is going up and the music is staying flat. So it's bizarre what's happening in video streaming because the content is exclusive. Back to how do music carnivores play out? Again, could we see it play out in features? I listen to Apple because they've got classical, and I listen to Spotify because it got Discover Weekly. Is that plausible? Personally, I don't buy it, but you can sow that seed and see if it takes root as well. I think just quick pause on Apple as well, I think two things there, they've launched Apple Classical, that's a very, very good example of differentiating a product, because it's a standalone app, like podcast is a standalone app, and the way I look at that is, you can go to the supermarket and buy all your shopping, you can get your Tropicana orange juice, you can get your bread, get your eggs, get your meat, get your fish, or you could go to a specialist butcher and buy your meat there instead. And Apple Classical for me is the specialist butcher, as opposed to the supermarket. And they're offering both in the same ecosystem. It'd be incredible if they preload that in the next iOS update and give 850 million people an Apple Classical app. Imagine if they did that for jazz, my friend. Imagine if they did that for jazz. Just, if Apple's listening, repeat, do that for jazz. So there's one example. The other example from Apple is to go back to bundling. You know, we talk about $9.99 a month. I chewed your ear off about this topic last time I was on your show. Just to remind your listeners, where did it come from? This price point in pound sterling, in euro, in dollar that we still pay for on the 20th of May, 2023. It came from a Blockbuster video rental card. That is, when RepsD got its license on the 3rd of December, 2001, not long after 9-11, a record label exec said if it costs 9.99 to rent movies from Blockbuster, that's what it should cost to rent music. And 22 years plus on... We're still there, ran over. But what does this mean for bundling strategies? How much does Apple really charge if I give $30 a month for Apple One, which is TV, music, gaming, news, storage, and fitness, all wrapped up into one price? Now, there's a famous Silicon Valley investor called James Barksdale. I don't know if you've heard of him from the Bay Area where you're based. And he had this famous quote where he said, Gentlemen. There's only two ways to make money in business bundling and unbundling what we've had for the past 10 years is herbivores unbundling pay for netflix don't pay for comcast pay for spotify don't pay for your cds fine what we might have in the next 10 years is carnivores bundling which is a pendulum swings back towards convenience of the bundle and away from the individual items so apple take 30 bucks a month off my bank balance please take 40 all I want is one direct debit i don't care about the money. I just want the bundle and i don't want to see 15 direct debits every month i just want to see one i think that's a very plausible scenario for how the next 10 years is going to play out as we shift from herbivores to carnivores
1: and the bundle benefits the companies that have the ability to do that right you can do that through amazon prime and get your video your music your free shipping or whatever is under that umbrella you can do that through apple you mentioned all the elements under apple one Spotify has some element of this as well, whether it's exclusive podcasting and things like that. So you're starting to see these things happen. One thing that you mentioned though earlier, you were talking about going through the supermarket and all of the items that you could get there versus going to the specialty butcher. One of the unique aspects of the supermarket thing though, is that you go into the supermarket, yes, you can get your high-end Tropicana or you can get the generic store brand, but you're going to pay more for that high-end Tropicana because you're paying for the brand, you're paying for everything else. That isn't going to necessarily be the same as the generic one that may not necessarily be the same quality or the same taste. We're seeing this a bit in the streaming landscape now and some of the debates that were happening. You've heard the major record label executives talk about how they don't necessarily want their Premium music, they see their content as HBO level and it's being in a playlist next to Rain Music or it's next to your uncle that is Mm -hmm. playing some random song on the banjo and they're getting essentially the same price going to the rights holders for that song. And in the supermarket, that's obviously very different. Each item has its own differentiator there or each item has its own price point there and its own cost, but that isn't necessarily the same thing in music. Of course, the cost of each of those tracks may be different, but the revenue isn't. So that's going to be, or that already is a whole debate that's going on right now. Do you have thoughts on that?
0: Well, you tossed up Tropicana. Let me go grab that carton for a second. It's one of the best economic lessons I ever learned was visiting a supermarket in America. Because it's true to say that when you go into one of your American supermarkets, an entire aisle of that precious shelf space, is dedicated to selling inferior brands of orange juice next to Tropicana. Just very quickly, what's happening there, the undercover economist, if you want, is a bargaining power game. Tropicana knows the reason Dan Ronsey pulled the car over, got the trolley, went into that supermarket is to get a staple item of Tropicana and other stuff by the time he gets to the till. Tropicana could be $5, by the time it gets to the till he spent $50. So their subscriber acquisition cost contribution is really high. They're getting you into the mall. What you do once you're in the mall is anyone's business, but they got you in. Otherwise, you would have gone to the deli across the street. So they could say to the supermarket, I'm going to charge you $7 to sell that Tropicana for $5 in my supermarket. Supermarket knows this. They know that Tropicana's got the bargaining power. So They counter by saying, here's an entire shelf space of awful brands of orange juice to curb your bargaining power to see if the consumer wants something different. Now, is this Will Page taking a stupid pill and digressing down Tropicana Alley? No. Let's think about this for a second. Today, Dan, there's 100,000 songs being onboarded onto streaming services. Is there anybody marching up and down Capitol Hill saying we want 100,000 songs? No. The floodgates have opened and it's all this content. Two new podcasts being launched every minute. All this content all of these alternative brands to Tropicana, but you just wanted one. And I think the record labels argument here is that one carton of Tropicana is worth more than everything else you're offering by its side. So we want to rebalance the scales. Now this gets really tricky and very contentious, but what is interesting if you want to take a cool head on this topic is to learn from the collecting studies, which is not the sexiest thing to say on a tropical podcast but it's to look at your CAPs and your BMIs and understand how they distribute the value of money for music. Since their foundation in the 1930s, SCAP has never, ever treated music to have the same value. They have rules, qualifications, distribution allocation practices which change the value of music. And they don't have data scientists then, and to be honest, I don't think they have data scientists now, but they always have treated the value of music differently. When they were founded, they had a, a classical music distribution pot and a distribution pot for music that wasn't classical music. Ironically, their board was full of classical composers, and I think that's called embezzlement, but we'll leave that to the side. What we have here is a story of recognizing music as different value in the world of collecting studies. I call that Jurassic Park. But in the world of music streaming, with all those software developers and engineers and data scientists, 22 years of 999 money coming in, and the pro rata model, which means every song is worth the same for money going out. And that's your tension. That's your tension. How do you get off that tension? Is anyone's business. We've got some ideas we can discuss. User-centric is one, artist-centric is another. I've got a few ideas of my own, but I want your audience to appreciate in straight-no-chaser language we call it, that's the undercurrent of what's going on here. How do you introduce capitalism to
1: communism? You mentioned there's artist-centric, user-centric, but you mentioned some ideas you had of your own. What are those ideas?
0: Can I bounce it off you as my intellectual punch bag for a quick second? And um, yes. I've worked them all. I've worked on the artist centric model. I've worked on artist growth models. That's up on YouTube. I've worked on user-centric. But I'm just I'm worried that these models, these propositions, could collapse the royalty systems that these streaming services work under. The introduction of user centric or artist centric could become so complex, so burdensome, the royalty systems could break down. That's a genuine concern I have. It's not one you discuss when you talk about your aspirations and the land of milk and honey of a new streaming model that you envisage. But back in the engine room, when you see how royalties are allocated and calculated and distributed out to rights holders, when they're under stress anyway, any more stress could snap it. So I come at this model, my proposition, from the one that's least likely to break the system. I'm not saying it's the best model, but it's least likely to have adverse impact on the system. And it came from my DCMS Select Committee performance in the UK Parliament, which your listeners can watch. We can give the link out. Which, as I said to the committee, in terms of how you could change the model, what about thinking about duration? Let's wheel back. Since the 1980s, when BBC Radio plays, let's say, Bohemian Rhapsody, it will pay for that song twice what it would pay for You're My Best Friend. Members of Queen wrote both songs, both released within three, four years of each other, but one lasts twice as long as another. So duration is not new. We factor in duration a lot in our music industry. We just never thought about it. If you look at Mexico, the Mexican collecting study, which is so corrupt, it's inside an army barracks. If you look there, they have sliding scale duration. They factor in time, but they say the second minute is worth less than the first. But I'm giving you more for more time just adding decreasing scale. Germany, they have ranges. In your country, America, Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC in Nashville, they have overtime. Songs that last more than six minutes get a 1.2 multiplier. So I've been thinking about how could you introduce duration to this business? And the idea I've come up with is not to measure time, That'd be too complex, too burdensome. Every single song measuring every second of consumption. How do you audit that if you're an artist manager? But I want to measure completion then. I think this is the answer. I want songs that are completed in full to receive a bonus and songs that are skipped before the end to receive a penalty. Not a huge bonus, not a huge penalty, but a tweak, a nudge, that says, I value your attention, I value great songs, and if you listen to these great songs and it captures my entire attention, you deserve something more. But if I skipped out after the first chorus, you deserve something less. I think that small nudge is a nudge in the right direction for this industry and it wouldn't break the systems. So there it is. Tell me now, have I taken a stupid pill?
1: What I like about it, and I've heard other people in the industry mention this too, You're able to get something closer to what we do see in video streaming. I forget which app it is specifically, but their threshold is 75%. So they acknowledge that yes, if you don't want to watch the credits, you don't want to listen to the closeout, that's fine. But if we at least get you for 75%, then we are gonna count that. And then that then can get used internally. That can then get used in different areas. But I think it provides everyone better data and analysis, much better data to be able to break down than whether or not you listen to the first 30 seconds, that's such a low threshold, but that's essentially where we are today. I think the biggest thing, regardless of what path is chosen, because as you and I both know, there's trade-offs to everyone. So instead of going through all the negative parts about it, I think it's probably more helpful to talk about it collectively. You accept the fact that there are trade-offs. You accept the fact that people are going to try to game the system regardless of how you go about it. Because we have seen duration work elsewhere and it does get at that particular thing that we're trying to get at, there is help there. And you mentioned other things such as, yes, if you're listening to Bohemian Rhapsody, which I think is at least seven minutes and 15 seconds, most likely longer versus two-minute song that is clearly idealized for the streaming era, there still should be maybe some slight difference there because listening to a minute and 30 seconds is very different than listening to five minutes and 45 seconds to be able to hit that 75% threshold. So between that and then I've heard other topics such as which artists you start your session with should have some type of multiplier on there. And as opposed to someone that gets algorithmically recommended to you to be able to put some more onus on the on-demand nature of music streaming, the tough thing is that these things do get tough in general. Anytime there's any type of multiplier or factor in there, still is a zero-sum pot that mm-hmm. we're Taking the money out of. So accepting the trade-offs, I like the direction. I think that there's a few ways to go about it. That could make it more interesting. But in general, I do think that any of the proposed options I've seen at least allow a bit more of a true economic reflection of where the reality is as opposed to where things are today. And I understand where things are today. It's easy. It's easy to report. It's easy to collect on and pay people out, relatively speaking. But like anything, there's trade-offs.
0: Yeah, it's really easy today. Even drummers can work out their royalties. And No offense to drummers, but that's telling you something. But two points on my duration proposal. Firstly, you mentioned the word threshold there. That's crucial because we already have thresholds in music. Every streaming service has to measure 30 seconds of uninterrupted play in order for our royalty to be crystallized. So I'm just adding a second threshold. I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's low marginal cost here. I'm just saying, Give me the threshold of completion. I don't care how long the song is and how much of that song was consumed. Just tell me, did it get to the finishing line? Yay or nay? And remember that threshold has anomalies. As I tell in the book Pivot, and previously as a hardback Tarzan in economics, that 30-second threshold is like the tail wagging the dog. You're seeing songs are getting shorter and the courses are moved to the front. Why? Because i got to hook you for 30 seconds. I don't care what happens after 31 seconds. Just give me 30 seconds. And why should I write a longer song when I'm not incentivized to do so? So the grass isn't greener back on the other side of the fence. There's problems with our current model. I think a way of like steering it back towards an attention economy is going to help music win. Kevin, Netflix says that sleep is their biggest form of competition, but also valuing the art of songwriting. Let's get back to the song. Let's put the artist back in a haystack and focus on the art, the creative process a bit more too, and reward that when it's consumed its entirety. Second thing and final thing to wrap up on, Dan, can I quickly tell you about a wedding I was at recently? Yeah. Well, I love weddings because you get to wear your kill. That's always a nice talking point. But I also love them because you get to speak to bands. I always forget to speak to the bride and groom. I just drift over to the band after the reception's over and chat to the band instead. And I was at a wedding recently. And the band was there and they played Celebration by Cool and the Gang for the Bride and the Groom. They played a second song for their parents to come and join on the dance floor. Then the band went into a two hour, 50 minute medley, non stop, right away through the evening, didn't stop. It's like, wow. The band were tight. Went over to them at the end of it, said, Drums, bass, you're in syncopation. I could see, like, you really are a tight band, but what on earth were you doing doing a two hour, 50 minute medley? And they said, It's TikTok. Nobody wants to hear complete songs anymore. And my pint glass dropped to the floor and they said that I was like, look, Scots people don't drop their drinks, but I dropped on this occasion because what did you say? It's TikTok. Nobody wants to hear a full song. They just want snippets. So we just do medleys instead. Now forget the economics and the legal arguments that makes me worried about which path music is currently on right now. We're in an attention economy and I think it's got a little bit warped. We've got to straighten up on the tracks. So I think this proposal has got legs.
1: That's that that wedding from that that story from that wedding you went to, that's like the Steve Lacey example, right? He went to his concert. His concert has been doing very well because of his song, Bad Habit. But then the people that are at his show, the fans that are there, they could only recite that one instance of the song that's on TikTok.
0: I don't know. Not even the whole
1: song. Just that instance of the song that are on TikTok. Granted, Steve Lace has been making music for a while. It wasn't all the fans that were there. But with this influx of him not being able to perform in bigger venues, people want to hear this song. It's one thing for years. We've become accustomed to musicians performing for audiences that only know their hit singles. or The one that got the music video. But now a lot of them are experiencing hearing their fans only repeat back that one <laughs> moment that went viral on TikTok
0: what's this? It's called verse two. If you stick around long enough, you'll hear a third one as well. <laughs> you know, it made me also just play that one off with me here, which is that famous Fleetwood Mac clip that blew up on TikTok. Guy hanging off the back of the truck, drinking a bottle of soda, singing Dreams, a 1981 song by Fleetwood Mac. It's 34 seconds. A couple of things. Firstly, that had about 90 million views, but had 843,000 impersonations on TikTok of people hanging off the back of a truck, pretending to sing a Fleetwood Mac song. But secondly, could you have a Gen Z millennial go and pay like £120 to see them at Wembley Stadium, the cost of a streaming service for a year, who's only ever consumed 34 seconds of their repertoire? I mean, that's not implausible, right? What type of world are we living in? Albums, albums.
1: And sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes that's all it takes, right? In some ways, the fact that we saw that much user-generated content from it, hundreds of thousands, as you just shared in that example, is huge. but. It's crazy. And this is actually a good transition to talk about AI because so much of the AI music that is relevant and has been top of discussion has been based off of popular artists we know. We're talking about the AI that's based on a viral song from the Drake and The Weekend. Granted, that song got a lot of buzz, especially when it first came out. I don't know how many repeat listens it's gotten since, but that's not necessarily the point. The point more so is exactly exactly 20
0: million streams from 20 million listeners nobody streamed it twice trust me
1: (laughs) you gave it at least one stream though right
0: you've got to give it a blessing
1: right what was your thought
0: well i'm going to hand the torch over to jessica powell the founder of audio shake who i think is the most exciting company in music tech right now and point your listeners towards her substack blog posting which is This whole Drake weekend thing isn't it just a fuss over a remix, paraphrasing the title? And it's a beautiful. That woman is inspirational, but she can write. She can write, which is like grabbing you by the lapels and shaking seven shades of shit out of you. She really uses the power of the pen to express her words. To go back to remix culture, so I think inspired from her work, I would say two things here I think the thorny legal issue that's going on here is consent we've had remix culture for years we've had computers involved in music creation for years we need to see that in a continuation but if you think about the language of deep fakes if I could manipulate the voice of Dan Runcie and put that over a record without his consent that's a red line I'm not being paranoid here, but there's a line that cannot be crossed. Dan Runcie did not say those words. A computer generated those words. You could be liable for those words. How do we solve that? That's not just music. There's a whole, that's a whole spectrum of issues out there in society today that are going to be affected by that. Music is a bellwether. It's a microcosm. It's the one that always gets hit first, but the rest are racked and stacked and ready to tumble. But on the positive side, you flip it from risk to opportunity. We think about catalogue uplift for a second. That is, how can release of new content drive demand in old content? As I've been saying to record labels since 2018, that's the secret source. That's what you're trying to correct. The purpose of a new album is not just make that new album a splash, get it to the top of the charts, make sure you're in today's top hits. It's can you get the new fans to go back and listen to the old content? For some artists it works, for others it doesn't you fix what's broken or work with what's fixed. The greatest example is an artist that I'd love to hear on Trapital, Eminem, needs no introduction. When I look at his streaming data, all he needs to roll out of bed, fart and burp on Spotify and his catalog goes through the roof. His new content has got nothing to do with new content. It just inspires people to go back to the late nineties and early noughties and all those releases, which were so big back then. The new content's great, no disrespect. But it's like a reminder that there's this amazing catalog that you want to hear again and again. And it's a valuable catalog because that stuff is already recouped. A catalog dollar is worth way more to the bank account than a frontline dollar. There are other artists who can't make it work. And it's just for me, what happens if AI music solves that secret source of catalog uplift? So here in the UK, here at Platoon Studios, I'm next door to Noel Gallagher from Oasis. And there was recently an AI generated Oasis Lee, which is getting Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher back together again. Artificial intelligence achieved this. Human beings can't achieve this. The two brothers don't get along. But AI solved it. That's cool. And Liam gave it a thumbs up. It's like, I love this. Rocking. Good stuff. I'm not offended by AI. I embrace this. What did we see? No, a small spike in the AI version, a big spike in Oasis catalog. So for all the fear and paranoia on this topic, once we realize that it can regenerate interest in catalog, I think you'll see the tables turn, the sentiment change in our New York millisecond, literally. It'll be like, I can make bucks out of this. This is a force for good, not a force for bad.
1: I would hope that that's what people take away from this whole narrative, is that if you are the owners of the back catalog of Drake and The Weekend, you probably saw some type of noticeable bump because... Even if people don't want to hear that song, they're still going to go back and stream Worst Behavior, which in my opinion is one of Drake's best songs because they want to hear that time Mm -hmm. and time again. And I think too, I'm glad you brought up Jessica and Audio Shake. I'm a small investor in the company. And one of the things that I think she did well in that piece and others she's done is just laying the table stakes for where we are because even if the song itself isn't that good, A, I don't think we're at the point yet. We may get there eventually with AI, but I don't think we're at the point where people will listen to this music as a replacement. But if it can remind you of what's already there, that's what's valuable. If you let fans experiment and get them to play around with the tools that are available and upload their music, as long as it can fit within certain parameters and isn't violating anything or trying to impersonate the artist itself, you can let them freely create in a way that, even 10, 12 years ago, there were all these questions about people putting their songs, uh, putting an artist's song on YouTube as user-generated content in a video. And over time, YouTube was able to figure out how to get tagging properly so that artists could still be compensated for. An... Problem. Exactly. So that is possible. And I do think that eventually we can hopefully get to that point. And I'm glad you mentioned Eminem. Two stats that always blow my mind. I'm sure you probably saw this one, but... His 2005 Greatest Hits album was the sixth best-selling album or the sixth best-selling hip-hop album. I forget the exact stat, but it was one of the best-selling albums in the U.K. last year. And Lose Yourself is the most streamed song on Spotify from the 2000s. So when we talk about longevity and we talk about him, I mean, people already knew him as the best-selling artist of the 2000s. But when we see those numbers and you see these catalog sales and all of that – if he ever made a decision, I don't know what his ownership structure, what share he has looks like, but if he ever had a decision, the amount of people that go back to his music to work out and everything else, it's one of the most valuable catalogs of music.
0: And he owns it all, right? Rights are reverted back to him. So he's got 100% ownership on that.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. So, but
0: the bigger point, and I know that the Capitol has a huge audience. It's an honor to address them here and there. And it's a broad church. I mean, the Secretary of State for media and culture in the UK parliament is a big listener, obviously. So I want to land that point, which is don't hand this off to the lawyers to solve because they're going to be too risk averse and they can't see the wood from the trees. There's a huge opportunity here and those sane, balanced voices like Jessica Powell from audio shake, I want them to be rise up so we can counter the risk aversion from the lawyers. Lawyers will do what they do best, but I describe in any workplace, there's two types of people. There's the yo squads. And there's no squads. And lawyers more often than not are no squads. They think of reasons why you can't do something. So I just want to make sure we balance it with some people from the Yo Squad so that we don't choke this off before the party can really start. There's so much opportunity. And let me remind your listeners as well. Jimi Hendrix, the greatest export from America to Britain of all time. He came here in 1966, I believe, maybe 65, 66. And the label that first did a deal with him the label owner, who I won't name, but I've seen the picture, had a plaque above his office. So this is 1966, okay? And the plaque said, the day that we can get computers to replace drummers is when we can have a proper music industry. And just keep in mind historical context. Music's a ride, and we're on this trip forever. We're not getting off anytime soon. This is just part of that ride, and that's what I loved about Jessica's essay. It's just a reminder that we're just on a ride here, and AI is just... The next stop on the train line there's more stops to come
1: agreed music is always going to be there it's like water right we have to understand (laughs) where the technology is heading but that's where it is well will before we close
0: along with the typewriter (laughs)
1: exactly exactly well well, before we close things out it's great this podcast the base of it is the business of music but you yourself are a DJ and you have this Mm -hmm. incredible mix that you put out every year it was an honor to provide one of the drops for it but tell us a little bit about the mix and what to expect this year
0: I'm so excited to uh, launch this mix it's going out on Friday Friday is an important day on the calendar it's gonna be 50 years since Carol King performed in Central Park to 100,000 people for free. 50 years since the release of her album, Fantasy. And this year's mix is called 2023, Believe in Humanity. And that word, you know, believe, that expression, believe in humanity, is the name of one of the songs on that Carol King album. Now, just wheel back for a second. You say Carol King, most people think of Tapestry, a wheelie jumper and a cat. And You Need a Friend with James Taylor. Get it. I mean that song got me through my third year at university. But if you listen to Fantasy, she does funk. And she doesn't just do funk, she does funk better than anyone. If you can hear the song Corathon, she's doing deep, dirty, aggressive funk. You know, me and you, our music tastes are similar. We don't drink tea without sugar. This is tea with lots of sugar. This is incredible funk music, and she just knocks it out of the park. Like, touch me if you can. Best funk record I've heard is fantasy by Carol King. So I've named the mix 2023, Believe in Humanity, after that song. The mix opens with that. But more importantly, Dan, it opens with a speech from Carol King exclusively to me. And that's for a kid from Edinburgh who's been doing mixtapes out of his bedroom since he was going through puberty. I've now got Carol King opening my mix. Do I need to say more? I got to say more. There's so much more. Niall Rogers is in the mix. Anderson Pack is in the mix. Dan runsey has got a shout out in the mix. And we've got Koi Lire, who I think is the most promising hip hop artist out there today. We have her and we've messed around with her track players. We've given it the edge. If you know Dave McCallum's music, we've given it the edge. There's a hint to your listeners. We've got it all. So, I mean, I put so much emotional time and effort into making these mixes happen. I'm going out for free. They get your DJ slots, but more importantly, it goes back to what makes me want to work in music, which was a lyric from Mike G and the Jungle Brothers from that famous album done by the Forces of nature, where he said, it's about getting the music across. It's about getting the message across. It's about getting it across without crossing over. How can I get art across an audience without diluting its integrity? And it's such an honor to have this mix in this Friday to do just that and to have Carole King open it. I mean, that's made my year. We're not even into June yet.
1: That's special. That's special. Well, we're excited to drop that and share it as well, especially around the time this episode comes out. So please share that link once it's ready. And Will, as always, it's been a pleasure. We covered so much in this episode. And before we let you go, where can people follow along to stay tuned with you for the next post that you put out for the next thing that you publish? Where can they stay to follow along?
0: Sure. I mean, a couple of, of tags. Firstly, the website, tarzaneconomics.com. I mean, I built that to be a resource for industry professionals, for students alike, so they can navigate the spaghetti of this music industry.
1: Um, Will soon be pivot.com, Lux, though? So you got to have a website that does well at airports. It,
0: I got the doppelganger. PivotalEconomics.com gets you to the same place. So I oh nice. it resurrect it for the paperback. Lucky I got that, too, just in the nick of time. Very active on LinkedIn. We'll page on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. And then also on Twitter, it's Will Page Author as well. But yeah, when this mix drops. It'll be great to get feedback from Trapped listeners. So please comment and please, please, please share. Get the music across without crossing
1: over. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Dan.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups,